peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome to the program. Great to have you back with us. Our producers, Brunel Brown. I'm Jason Jackson. Kirk Morrison. Great to be back with you, Kirk. Uh, what, what, a, what a show we have today, man. I mean, yeah, we, we you, up. <laughs> you, know I, you know I love ball, right? You know I love the orange leather. Pays yeah. all my bills. But we got, we got a couple of baseball guys here. Uh, we got Barry Larkin with us in mm-hmm. just a couple moments. Don't, don't get me started on Barry. Uh, we have uh, from ESPN, uh, one of their fantastic analysts, Doug Glanville, will join us in a little bit. And we'll keep it NFL flavor, just for you, by the way. Uh, fantastic writer, author, Mike Freeman will join us in, in just a little bit. But uh, with, with everything that's uh, upon us, and there's so much, right? We just finished uh, awarding the Stanley Cup. Congratulations uh, to everybody in Tampa. Uh, we have, we're full blow, even though. Some some COVID staggerings occurring in college football and in the National Football League. Um, the the NBA um, that NBA Finals moving too quick for me. Okay, I needed to I needed to slow down a little bit. <laughs> but we are in. I know <laughs> we are in the second <laughs> season with, with baseball, and so they are on their biggest platform. Kurt. Yeah, but you know what? Um, I know that you're a a, a baseball fan, mm-hmm. and so I don't even want to take any more time. I, I want to just let you have all the time that you need to talk you to your me. boyhood idol, you know Mr. Me. Barry Larkin. So look, we can just jump right into it, brother, because you know I know how much you cannot <laughs> wait to talk to Barry Larkin, man. So I'm going to sit this one out, but you uh, you take this one over, Jason. Listen, man, you know me too well. <laughs> you know me too. I'm on my championship wall, right? We've got Tiger. We we got Shaq. Uh, I, I got all the greats. Muhammad Ali. But then there's another wall, and it's just for our next guest. We welcome in the Hall of Famer from the Cincinnati Reds, Barry Larkin. Still, still in the organization, reaching and teaching all these young people. Barry, welcome. Tell us about uh, the Larkin Project Unity Initiative you put together. Uh, we're talking about uh, images and messages that are available uh, to all teams that are still in the postseason that you came up with. Uh, and, and it's such a wonderful thing. I'm looking forward to, to hearing all about it. But it, it's it's such a interesting time because we're, we're dealing with uh, something that you had to deal with before you moved to the forefront. Uh, taking a stand and sending a message or succumbing to uh, what has happened over a few hundred years uh, black folks being sick and tired uh, and almost sick and tired of being sick and tired. Well, being a baseball guy, I always aspire to make a positive contribution. And that is just simply what I wanted to do with this initiative, this Project Unity initiative. You know, my thoughts were to obviously bring attention to the issues that are happening out in our communities the marginalization of women, the racial inequities, uh, the systemic racism, and bring it to light from a baseball perspective. 
historically and traditionally black and brown communities don't aren't the fan base aren't the the fan base that you see at the games all the time unlike the nba and unlike the nfl which has great representation on the field and in the stands there's definitely lacking participation on the field in the front office and in the stands as far as baseball is concerned. So a real concerted effort to reach out to the minority uh, membership within Major League Baseball to say that we stand along with the people out protesting. We stand with the other sports, the NBA and, and NFL and, and Bubba Wallace with NASCAR. Uh, we stand with the athletes that are making a stance and saying, we just can't take it anymore. That's, that's all it is. It's bringing attention to the issues at hand, but not only that, being part of the solution as well. The solution is to unite. It's power and unity. And that's what this fist on my, my T-shirt, that's what that represents. I swing for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter. And so I reached out to a lot of brothers in the baseball space and got a lot of positive feedback from them. And we have some videos that we're going to run during this postseason and during the during the upcoming offseason that talk about, hey, we appreciate black lives. We swing for we pitch for black lives, black lives matter. But not only that, we pitch to heal and unite. We swing to heal and unite. So it's the the narrative is continuing to change. Jay. So what I want to do is bring attention to, but also be part of the solution of bringing people together and healing the wounds. So you came up with this awesome label, this graphic design of a black and white hand clasped together, the words heal and unite. Uh, I assume that conversation with a Hall of Famer and, and Major League Baseball is easier than most. Uh, was there much work you had to do to get this done? Because basically you did this for every team, every clubhouse, right? Advance of the playoffs. Yeah. yeah, we've done it. We've done it and we've got it approved by Major League Baseball now. There's some logistical issues because we just got it approved recently. And so we're waiting to see the bat uh, knob decals placed on the, the, the knob of the bats. We haven't seen it yet. But there's a pro process that everything has to go through with this COVID. It makes it much more difficult and, and logistically uh, challenging. But yes, it's, been a, it's probably been a four or five month process. Mm -hmm. uh, the original thing was to create uh, the Black Lives Matter fist, which is what you see here. It's a computer generated version or image of my fist. And I wanted to do that because, you know, I wanted to be authentic in the visual, but I also want to be authentic in the messaging. I know the Black Lives Matter movement has whatever positive, negative connotations along with it. There's been a political politicization of uh, what's happening out on the streets. Steer clear of that. So I wanted to make my message, mine, authentic. And I also wanted to make my visuals authentic as well. And you can't get any more authentic than a, a fist uh, of my own. And, I've, and it's really interesting because I have a very distinguishable mole on my right hand, on the palm of my right hand. And you can see that mole and we captured that mole on the fist itself. The design, and that was really the initial design. And then it was, okay, how do I, how do I play this forward? How do I 
call attention to have to stand by people who are rising up because of the frustration, because of the the senseless killings of our people at the hands of police, the, the politicalization of all the issues that are out there. This isn't black and white. It's, it's not it's mankind. It's everyone coming together. And so with that messaging and with that narrative changing and continuing to develop, the designs continue to develop. And that's where we ended up landing with the class hands to heal and unite. You know, Major League Baseball has been great in this whole process. I've walked walked through this process with uh, a chief director of diversity, Tony Regans with Major League Baseball. He's really been, he was fantastic and helped was Tony Clark with the Players Association. And, you know, I talked to them about kind of what I wanted to do. And they advised me, listen, you're dealing with a an organization and industry in Major League Baseball that, you know, the fist is probably going to be a problem. So the fist is definitely part of the program, but the part of the program that Major League Baseball has adapted has been the ongoing, the forward narrative of Healing Unite. So I'm very happy that, uh, that they have endorsed it. Uh, Rob Manfred, I talked to him personally. He told me it was good stuff. And hopefully what we will do, I mentioned Tony Regans with uh, the chief diversity officer, of Major League Baseball. This will be part of the messaging going forward for baseball. As far as leading up to amateur baseball, any of the initiatives that Major League Baseball does without the Major League Baseball players, the plan is to have this type of positive messaging on the bats and part of the, just part of the, just part of the DNA Uh, and the fabric of bringing up young people in the game of baseball. We are with Hall of Famer Barry Larkin. I'm Jason Jackson. Kirk Morrison joins us once again in a little bit uh, here on Forward Progress. Barry, listen, you you live in Central Florida, conservative. You grew up in Cincinnati, conservative. Was there any hesitation or any blowback that you got when you, I know you have the desire and, and, and obviously the ideas and plans, but there, is there any hesitation about these spaces where you're from and where you live that oftentimes can paralyze sometimes? Well, you know, I, I feel like I don't have the same type of platform that I had as a player. When I was a player in a black man from Cincinnati, growing up in a very conservative town, playing for Marge shot, I had to field questions about the racial comments that she supposedly made about Eric Davis and Dave Parker. I was the captain of the team and they were looking for me uh, to comment. And I did. And I got all kind of death threats. I got all kind of blowback, uh, pushback, you know, from, you know, we know where you live. We're going to blow up your house to we know where your family is. You know, it's just, it was crazy. And, you know, Jason, it was like, for me, there was no middle ground. For me, as a player, there wasn't a middle ground that I could just ride the fence and say, well, maybe she didn't really mean it. You know, my point then and my point now is there is no room for racism. I don't care where you are, who you are, or where you're from. And if you can't say Black Lives Matter, there's a problem. So, and do all lives matter? Certainly they do. But where we are right now, if you can't say Black Lives Matter, there's simply a problem. Like if you cannot denounce the white supremacy, there's a problem. And so it, it just is it just is what it is. And so as a player, I dealt with it. And now the only thing that changed now is that I'm still a black man. I'm still a man of color. 
<laughs> the only thing changed is that I'm just not playing. Now I'm just teaching the guys that are playing. For me, once again, there was no middle ground. Silence is not an option. Riding the fence was not an option. And I just felt so compelled to do something. I, I just wanted to do something. And, you know, I'm motivated because I work with some real good brothers in the game. D. Gordon is a fantastic young friend of mine. I, I like to call him a friend of mine. And, and, you know, he calls me sir all the time. I have a problem with that because, you know, I understand I play with his dad, but come on now. But he was, he's been huge as far as kind of helping me to craft the narrative. Francisco Lindor, uh, Edwin Rios, Carlos Gonzalez, these young guys that are playing the game today have, have been huge as far as my motivation to want to stay close to it, as well as the people in the Reds organization. But those are guys in the offseason that I choose to spend my time with. And so there was not an option of silence. There wasn't an option of, of not addressing this. I just am trying to use my platform to certainly bring along, bring on about uh, the issues, but push the narrative to, okay, we know there are issues out there, but how do we deal with the issues? So I look at this program as kind of a, a conduit to kindness, kind of a conduit to change. You know, I look at this as bringing people together. Eventually, we, we do need to heal and unite. And if we work with that intent and everything is and there's transparency, then I think eventually we will get there. The beauty about what is happening, and I said this early during the protest, was that it looked like our clubhouse out there on the street. You know, has there been protests before? Absolutely, there's been protests before. But the difference now is that it's not just people of color that are protesting. It's not just men, first of all, that are protesting. Men of color out there protesting. There's men of all ethnicities out there protesting. There's women out there protesting. And there's all kind of different demographics out there saying that we need change. And there's power in our unity, power in us coming together and working together to demand this change. Before I let you run, Barry, I gotta ask you, this is a game that I love. I've been around basketball for my business, but baseball's uh, in my blood. And it, and it, I don't know the answer, and maybe you have a better one. When I was young and you were a little bit in front of me, but, but when you were breaking into the game, we probably had gotten to a height of black players, just the number of black players coming into the game, maybe a little bit uh, earlier than that late 70s, early 80s, and, and obviously we're at, at dwindled numbers. Now that we know what we know about football, there's some unique athletes that are now available, the parents not allowing that game to be in their space. Obviously, there is another mentality at this time where kids are focusing on one sport, and, and oftentimes basketball can get some of those great athletes. Lacrosse is expanding. Soccer is expanding. What is the answer to, to grab a, a young, great black athlete? I'm not saying... There aren't any, obviously, waiting for Hunter to come along, by the way. Uh, but with that being said, uh, is there something the game needs to do that we all, all of us that love baseball need to do outside of introducing this game to uh, our, our children? Well, I think baseball needs to be part of the fabric of our upbringing. You know, I think if Major League Baseball or just baseball in general wants to be, wants to get our athletes, then there needs to be an investment in the community and it needs to be part of the fabric of our upbringing. I said that again, because what's happening right now is that there are events that are happening and the events are great. 
and the, the, the camps and the clinics are great. The showing up and doing something good for the community is great. And then the other 364 days of the, the year, you know, it's not so great because that camp or clinic is gone. So I believe, and, and I truly believe that there is a move from within Major League Baseball. I mentioned Tony Regan's for a reason. Mm-hmm. Diversity is huge on the minds of Major League Baseball. And he is a great man that is taking it seriously and trying to do something about that. So I really truly believe that in order for us to get our kids to play the game, my own son doesn't play the game, but the the reason my son doesn't play the game is because it wasn't part of the fabric of his upbringing. When I was around, it was, but when I left and all his boys were like, low, let's go who? That's what they, that's what they went to do. They weren't playing baseball. And it's just because they just, you know, it just is too expensive. There's not the equipment. There's not the space. There's all kind of different reasons. But an investment in our community, as far as baseball is concerned, a true investment. That means people. That means equipment. That means space. That was that's what needs to happen. And messaging. And please, I mean, we've got so many positive people of color in the game that are doing some great things. And You know, I think historically one thing that has happened with baseball is that they have been uh, slow to to put the individual out there uh, to market the individual. They want to market the game. You know, Mookie Betts is a smiling, wonderful young man. Uh, Francisco Lindor is Mr. Smiles. You know, we've got some really, really marketable people out there that are really, really good baseball players that young people of color can look at and say, oh, wow, he's doing that. I can do that too. I know that was the case. My father was my inspiration when I played. I saw him. He was coaching at the time. I didn't see him play, but it was David Concepcion or Ken Griffey Sr. or some of the, you know, Hank Aaron or whomever, some of those guys. And I was like, whoa, Ozzy Smith. Those are the guys that I'm looking at that I can do that. I want to do that. I think that's what needs to happen in order to get our kids out there to play. National League MVP, World Series champion, Hall of Famer, Barry Larkin, here on Forward Progress. Sir, we thank you for the time. All right, Jason, thanks for having me. Kurt, thank you. Thank you. That's, that's, <laughs> that's a teammate right there. You, You're welcome, man. You letting me handle that situation. Now, say, hey, now when we get Ricky Henderson, you'll understand. Now, you're going to have to sit this one out. All right. Now, we get Ricky Henderson. Yes, sir. Now, okay, then it's on me. All right, you got to sit that one out. I will, I will one out. <laughs> pop my shirt collar and hop out of the batter's box. <laughs> Just like the man who has the most leadoff home runs in the history of, of baseball. We turn our attention, though, to the National Football League. Mike Freeman, you can find all his great work on Bleacher Report, a fantastic writer and an author. He's got a book, Kirk, that we should own, that all our listeners should own. We'll talk with him and about that when we come back on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. The program continues. So glad to have you with us every single week. Uh, what a pleasure we have this week. As a matter of fact, it's every week. Kirk, I don't know about you, man. We're starting to hit some fire here. I got people calling me when we're on tape. Well, what are we doing and who we're talking to? So. Jax, man, the word getting out. Let's just be honest. The, the, the word is getting out, man. And I'm excited afraid. about that. We're not afraid. And we're so happy to have our next guest NFL writer and the author of Documentation All Should Have in Hand, Football's Fearless Activist. It's Mike been with us. Michael, thank you so much for taking a minute to be with us in such a poignant point in the timeline. You're here with us. Uh, first things first, does the National Football League need anything else on its docket right now? It needs this activism. It needs this pandemic. It needs the reality that it's tough not playing football unless you're in a bubble. Uh, it is 
so much on the platter as you look at everything before we dive into your text and, and get your feeling on how the young men are dealing with this as well as the league. Could you imagine a platform like this, fact or fiction, uh, that you're trying to play a season of the National Football League on? This is, uh, it's like everything else in society. It's wild. I mean, you can't, I don't know if you guys ever imagined in your life where you would live through all these multiple things. I mean, we've seen stuff like this before. I, I don't know if sports has ever faced just a massive, huge pandemic like this simultaneously with everything else going on in society. And so the league, I think, has really, with the pandemic part of it, has done actually a pretty good job um, considering they didn't go in a bubble. Uh, the players, I, I've, you know, Kirk can dress as a, a, the players have really taken this very seriously from the, from from the very beginning and really tried to just do the smart right thing from the very beginning of all this they they know that this was a time for if, if you were smart you could survive this you could have minimum impact on not just your life but the people you love around you and with few exceptions very recently as recent as today as recent as last 48 24 40 hours last last little bit it's been pretty almost flawless um, but this is, you know, the pandemic, this is how, what viruses do. They're nasty. They've been around for a billion years. They don't care about an NFL schedule. There was bound to be some type of issue. And now we're seeing the issue with the Titans and the Vikings. But overall, it's been, it, they've handled pretty well. But then you throw into this, this dynamic of impact socially of the president of the United States, all this other Part of it, um, I mean, the 60s, we saw this. We saw a lot of stuff from the 60s, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown. We've seen this stuff going back for this country's entire history. I think now the difference is, look at us, look at what we're doing. We're on video talking about this. You have three African-American men talking about this. There's differences now that are making these dynamics even more interesting. We have more reach, talk about it better, talk about it more, talk about it easier, but it's still very impactful and very tough. And there's just a lot going on and a lot, a lot to get to. You know, Mike, as we move through the, uh, the pandemic and through the NFL season, is the message being lost with the NFL player now? Because I know there was a lot of momentum going into training camp, uh, what was going on throughout the offseason, because there was no football. So players had that voice. And then kind of what I kind of suspected, right? Once the season started, would the message start to either get lost or we forget about it? Because Patrick Mahomes is thrown for how many touchdowns? Or Russell Wilson, who's I know your guy, has thrown for 14 touchdowns in three games. And now we're not talking about the message of social justice anymore, but how great the games are, which I think we all love, but how do they get back this momentum, especially when I look at this morning, right? And I see videos of Eric Reed, who's been a, a known uh, advocate for Colin Kaepernick and was part of this movement, still out there without a job, working out, showing teams that he is ready, and yet not even getting a phone call. So how is that message in these first weeks? Is it still strong or what must the NFL players do to re get that message back out there? All really good points, all perfect and all dead on. And the answer is the message has become diluted a little bit exactly because of what you said. The games have started. We're fascinated by what we see on the field and that will take precedent over 
some of this other stuff that happens. There's no question that's happening. But I do think the players, you know, when I talk to players around the league, they, they're still thinking about this. They're still, this is still at the top of their list. This is still the, the big thing to them. Um, it's just that it's bound to get lost when you're trying, I mean, you know, when you're trying to play, I mean, this guy, you got all this other stuff you, that you got to really focus on besides the fact that it's a really violent sport that you need to really concentrate on and do and really focus on, not to mention the other stuff you're trying to just stay healthy, not to mention that if you catch this virus, you could die, not to mention there's a presidential election. All this other stuff that players think about is part of this, is diluting what has happened. I did... I want to focus on something you brought up with Eric Reed. Not only is Eric Reed out of league, remember Colin Kaepernick's still out of the league. I mean, Colin Kaepernick could play. Look at some of the dudes that these teams are signing. I mean, look at some of these dudes. I mean, I don't mean any. No, no, hey, no trust no. me. Hey, the Denver Broncos can use Colin Kaepernick today, <laughs> right now. No, I mean it, it's it's a disgrace. I mean, it really is. But I think I think you're you hit on something that is sort of natural that is there's going to be. Because the, you have to focus on your, the job at hand, there's going to be some some of that message is going to be lost a little bit. But I don't think overall it's lost. I think it's right here, right here at the top of the players. It's right there. They talk about it among themselves. They talk about it in the locker room. They talk about it to the families. They talk about it to the coaches, the teams. The league, I think, more than it's ever been because it was forced to, is now really focusing on this. So I think it's still there. But there are things that are sort of pushing the message, diluting the message a little bit. Mike Freeman is with us. He is a professional observer of the National Football League. You can check his musings out on Bleacher Report. But but he has that wonderful audacity now. He is an author of this wonderful book. I always say that it takes a high level love, love of self to, to write a book. And I, that's, and I feel like I have it, Michael. I just I haven't figured out the subject. No, no, no. You got it. It's there. Find it's there. Trust me. You'll find it. I'll find my way to something. The name of the book, which you can find on Amazon right now, we advocate that everyone listening uh, grab this text. Football's fearless activist, how Colin Kaepernick, Eric Reed, Kenny Sills, and fellow athletes stood up to the NFL and President Trump. Let's deal with the last two words uh, in your subtitle for a second. We got time? We got time. You should oh, <laughs> it wouldn't call you if we didn't have it. it. wouldn't call you if we didn't have it. We're taping this on the mid-afternoon after the first presidential debate debacle. The man stood up there and took credit for bringing back football on the collegiate level, particularly the Big Ten. So I'm hesitant at all times to acknowledge his perceptions about his impact on things, but it's that office. That office causes for that type of power and swaying and impact, not necessarily the person who's in it. So I'm willing to even go a, a little bit into this because of it. And because there was just such a nasty and, and unbecoming response to civil, not even disobedience, just a, a message of the fatigue we all feel as Black people as it pertains to what, unfortunately, is the preponderance of our experience with law enforcement. Right. Did you feel like as you were starting to approach this text that you had to spend so much time just clarifying what we're really talking about? Well, another good question. The one of the first things I write in the book, one of the first sentences is Colin Kaepernick was right. A lot of us 
a lot of people who look like us always knew Colin Kaepernick was right. We always knew that he was not protesting the flag. He wasn't protesting the military. He wasn't protesting anything except exactly what he was doing, what he was saying. He was protesting the preponderance of black and brown people being shot unarmed by police and systemic racism. He made that clear over and over when he first started doing this, I'm right at his locker. I was there towards the beginning for most of it. I've been following this closely for four years. His message was always the same. What happened was his message was attacked by the most powerful person in the world. We've never seen in the history of this country a president attack a sports figure. It's never happened before. You combine that with right-wing media and that message became just completely misconstrued for what it was. They, they were able they were able to successfully, I have to admit it, warp his message and make it something it, would ne- it never was. You know, talking about Trump, this is the, the real interesting part about this, and I mentioned this in the book and cover this in the book, is just how he was able to intimidate the NFL. And in some cases, the owners, a lot of the owners agreed with him. So the NFL was always deathly afraid that he would call for a boycott of the league or that there would be some type of right wing boycott of the league and it would lead to people not watching the foot, watching the NFL. That was never going to happen. People always say they're not going to watch the NFL because of this. And there's always the most watched thing in television. But they were terrified of that. So that was sort of the conflict here. Colin was just doing something that protected and raised an issue with people who look like him, black and brown people, and the league had no idea how to deal with it. First, they ignored it, then they shunned it, and then George Floyd happened, and they had no choice but to really address it in a very strong, direct way. Roger Goodell said, Black Lives Matter. I never thought I'd ever see the day Roger Goodell would be on tape saying Black Lives Matter. There he is right there. You can go Google it. There he is saying it. So unfortunately, it took a huge, horrible tragedy for the league to finally embrace what Colin was saying. And finally, for so many people in America who didn't otherwise to understand what he was talking about and to really deal with it. And we're still dealing with it. We'll be dealing with it for decades, probably. Mike, I know last question for me, but you've been covering sports for a long time, not just the NFL. But I feel like right now, and even when you're you know, covering when I played, Mike, I felt like we never really had a voice. And if you did have a voice, guess what? You probably won't be on this team. Yeah. So how woke do you think that the athlete is currently? The black athlete, how woke is the black athlete in terms of the issues, the upcoming election, and how they can use their voice? I think they're very woke. I think they're very aware. And um, I would go no further than Patrick Mahomes when the biggest star in the league is one of the leading voices on this, when you have a quarterback on this. I mean, just to be blunt, you want to see more white players, particularly white quarterbacks, taking part in this, and some some do, but the vast majority are the black players, and they are very energized. And I think the big thing is you hit on this a little bit. Players are always afraid to do something like this and understandably so because they'd be gone. If they weren't a star player, they were gone. If they, if they did something, if they protested, if they spoke about this, they were terrified of doing it. That fear is gone now. They know they can say whatever they want with very few repercussions. Colin Kaepernick and Eric not playing notwithstanding, but there will be pain to pay, a price to pay if you 
try to stomp on a player now for speaking up the way they want to speak up. So I think they're very woke. I think they're very aware. I think they want to use their power to move forward and address a lot of these issues. And you're seeing them do that. You're seeing them in a bunch of different ways do that. And I think that's going to keep going. Uh, and I think you're going to have, I mean, the owners are the owners. They're just going to be over here hoping nothing blows back on them. But the league office, I think, is very committed to backing the players, if not only because they were forced to, but they're doing it. So, uh, and they and the and the players are working with them. I think you're seeing everyone work in unison for the first time, probably in ever, to change things that are happening in this country. So they are aware, they're powerful, they want to flex that muscle, and they are doing it. The book is Football's Fearless Activist. The author is Mike Freeman. You can check him out. Covering the National Football League for Bleacher Report as well. Mike, we thank you for the time, sir. Guys, thank you. Live long and prosper, baby. Let's go. Yes! I knew it. I was waiting for it, Mike. There you go. You knew it was coming, Kirk. You knew it. I knew it was coming. I knew it. There it is. Thank you. Kirk, how lucky are we? I mean, we get to have these fantastic conversations with these heady folks about uh, a very important subject. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those situations for me is that I sit back and I learn something every single week, Jason. Yeah. As, as much as, as we are, uh, we have our own thoughts and opinions, I get a chance to hear someone else's thoughts and opinions. And I feel like mine just grows even more. So definitely lucky each and every week to be a part of this. Cranium swelling continues <laughs> with our next guest. You want to talk about Hetty. You, you have a special note about our next guest. We'll save for our conversation with him. Uh, baseball analyst. You, you Folks in Chicago, you get to love him. Everybody that's rocking Sunday night baseball on radio and, and all baseball coverage on ESPN. You know all about Doug Glanville, and he's next here on Forward Progress. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Now we get to turn my and your attention, Kirk, to the beginning of my sports love. Before <laughs> all this basketball paid all my bills, uh, when nobody was looking, when I first heard the crack of a ball on a bat and smelled that grass in the springtime in Ohio, it was baseball. It is still baseball. And we turn to Doug Glanville, who joined us now, who understands full well what I'm talking about. It's, it's just something, there's something about it. It's hard to explain yeah. to people. And I grew up in that part of the country where you did have that real true conversion from winter into spring. And baseball came with that. And it was, fortunately for me, the late 70s and early 80s is when I fell in love with this game. And people that look like the three of us uh, were really starting to play this game at its highest level. We'll discuss how we can get back to that, as we tend to do with everybody of color uh, that we talk about baseball with in a little bit. But let's start with a question that you asked yourself when all of this came back. And when I mean all of this I'm talking about the pandemic. I'm also talking about social unrest, for lack of a better umbrella term. If you would participate, if the question came to you as a player in this time and how you wrestled with all of that. No, I appreciate you having me. And, and it's definitely a question I asked myself compared to when I was playing in the big leagues. And, you know, we just didn't feel like there was a, this platform, this opportunity in the same way. And now we're seeing not only a coalition around athletes within their sports, we're seeing it across sports, searching for this sort of universal space around humanity to elevate these issues that often are brought front and center through race and through the black experience. And so I would think, 
I would have been very involved today, given what has been exposed and just the level of the, the power of the moment. You know, this is a, a time where you have an opportunity to, to make a change before sort of the amnesia may kick in for starters. And but there's also this sense that uh, sports are now recapturing this role that to me has always been part of it, especially when you talk about the black community. You think about access, Jackie Robinson, you know, you had to do more than stick to sports because you were the avenue, the conduit to your people in many regards, because you didn't often have other platforms by which to engage other than the clergy, entertainers, maybe uh, the power was within these athletes, these entertainers that had to have this duality, right? You couldn't just be a sort of baseball player. And by the way, the world wouldn't allow that to be anyway, because your experience outside the lines was, and even inside the lines, was so dramatically different. And I think we're seeing people now try to be better teammates, especially baseball, which is, does not have the diversity, well, it has a tremendous amount of diversity, doesn't have the black representation. When you see you Darvish from Japan on the Cubs wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt, and you see other people realizing that there's something shared here that we should care about, and then you're, you're making some strides and certainly taking some steps in the right direction to bring us all together around this. You know, I think, Doug, I wanted to kind of rewind just a little bit because when, when you think about your resume, not just as a baseball player, as an analyst, but you as a collegiate playing in the Ivy League, right? You know what I mean? Like you're an Ivy League grad. W was there times back then of situations of you being a man of color playing baseball in the Ivy League, which we know is very few and far between? Were there instances where you could see, see yourself being uh, either oppressed or being sort of the odd person out, but yet your talent taking over? Was that something that you had to go through and how did you overcome that? Yeah, that's a no, that's a definitely a great point and great insight on. Uh, there was a, plenty of challenges. I mean, you know, for starters, the Ivy League in and of itself has this sort of narrowing of representation. Then you add sort of baseball as a sport. And there was times where, you know, I was the sort of lone representative. I was at University of Pennsylvania. So there was a couple of other black players on the team, but most were part of the travel squad, for example. So we had, you know, so it was kind of me basically in that regard. And, um, and yeah, I think and interesting when I was in college, the late 80s had this big explosion and this discussion about the black athlete. It was almost like a featured conversation. There were studies coming out, fast twitch, you know, all this stuff. And it became this battle over the words and natural born ability. You started to hear that. And I remember feeling a lot of resentment, generally not just sort of saying on my team, but there was this feeling of, well, you're born with everything and you don't work hard and you're given everything, right? So there's that sentiment. You know, it was it was tough. I mean, I definitely struggled my first two years at Penn. I think the second year towards the end, I realized that there's certain issues I might be alone on and I have to kind of find ways forward because I still love the game. And then I started to come into my own as a player and became a captain and I started commanding a different engagement or relationship with players. So I remember walking into my coach who I love to death, he and saying to him, Jackie Robinson would turn over in his grave for some of the things that you're expecting of me at this point, right? It was uh, wow. because, uh, you know, just trying to have understanding. So we had a big incident on campus where there was a student I went to school with who uh, ended up serving a significant amount of time for drug possession and all these things. But And his brother was sort of the, the sort of main figure, but he got arrested in, during a break in school. And then we came back, I knew him actually. And when we came back, you know, there were, it was all these moves to kick him off campus, all these things. And I was sort of fighting for his due process, even if there was guilt or whatever. And the, the school, there was a sort of question on whether they were following that. So I was wearing a ribbon in support of this. And I, I took a lot of heat for that. So we had very different experiences, but 
think in some ways it came out fairly positively overall in my relationship with my teammates and the university and everything, but also stronger. Baseball analyst, Doug Glanville. I would say simply ESPN, but like me and many others, I enjoy a brother that has multiple streams of income. You can find that man <laughs> handling things for uh, Mark Key for the uh, athletic and so many other uh, venues. What is your view to this point, how baseball has addressed racial equality and the players who have utilized their platform? I know you named a few, but specifically African-American players that may not have the same thrust of hot air in their balloon as other sports may, but are still standing firm and letting their platform be a space where they discuss this very important issue. Well, baseball has been behind for a long time. And I think this has been an effort to get current to some degree and they've taken some steps to, to at least make those moves you know for one very different demographics and that presents a different set of challenges but I also think it said, sets a different set of rewards when you have people from so many different walks recognizing the importance of Black Lives Mattering right and, and standing for that whether you're from Japan or from Nebraska or whatever and I think that has its own power that baseball has a great opportunity and I wrote something about five things baseball can do to address systemic racism and one is celebrating its existing diversity in its form, but part of it is also just looking at, you know, the hiring practices at the top. You know, they do fairly well in other positions, but when you get to ownership or, you know, leaders on the field, general managers, baseball operations, you don't see the quite the same representation. And so I had, you know, some ways that the game can look at it differently and be aggressive. And one basic thing that to look at is 1947 when Jackie Robinson broke in, it's easy to look at the quiet, low-key Jackie Robinson that didn't say a lot early on in his career and say, oh, that's the sort of image of black strength in baseball. But the reality is the second half of his career and Jackie Robinson post-career was a complete activist. Like he was on the streets. So why don't we celebrate that Jackie Robinson? Where, where, where's that story? And if baseball embraces that figure, then you can really get the whole picture because the idea that we have this sort of monolithic sort of image of what is black activism and having it in a way that you're, you're not vocal or you're not sort of taking on, you know, challenges that are confronted with you every day of your existence, it, you know, creates sort of a disingenuous expectation of, oh yeah, well, you can just sort of walk this walk. So Jackie Robinson was talking about the anthem, you know, protests. He was all kinds of things. He opened a bank. He was a columnist. He, you know, so baseball, I think, has a tremendous role. They, they, because it is one thing to be empowered in basketball where you look to your left and right and see people in your image who are going through a similar struggle and feel collective strength. That's one strength. But there is another strength of being the underdog and defining how we find our identity within our interaction with people who are not looking like us and don't have the experience and really working towards the centerpiece that sports can celebrate and that is to be one team right to achieve something as one country to fight for equity that sports do all the time in their rules and fairness and drafts and those are good environments for athletes to speak out because i think they're uniquely qualified to talk about unity and qualified to talk about equity because it's their life blood in the sports arena and so i categorically reject sticking the sport i think it's absurd and by the way it never was true anyway you go back to late 18s, you know, after the Civil War. I mean, you could go back. So I think we're at, at that time where baseball can play a, a tremendous role. Yeah. Is, is there a little bit of difficulty, though, for some of the actual African-American players sort of sometimes being drowned out because baseball is so dominated by the Latin player, by the white player, that sometimes their voices seems to be drowned out? Well, it's it's difficult when you're a small percentage. And I, I like knowing 
going during my career, I treaded lightly. I didn't know where the landmines were. And I was a union rep, Players Association rep. And so there was a lot of spotlights on me in terms of taking on ownership and, and so on. But I think the strength in seeing ourselves in each other, right? The struggle that we're all fighting for in humanity, whether Latin American players, uh, there's still a struggle. There's still a challenge of people of color uh, in general. And also you can find your teammates within your own team sensibility that you are more aligned and have much more common ground than may be perceived by sort of different experiences in the world. Even if you have a certain privilege, you have a certain disadvantage or disenfranchisement. So it is challenging, but I also think there's so much more power when we can elevate humanity in the center, right? You still have black specific issues, no question. And the legacy of slavery and the legacy of the black existence in our country is unique. But there is a common thread in there to talk about what are we trying to achieve, right? Like equality and equity. And you can relate to women and, and Latino players and all these ways that we can come together. And still, baseball uniquely is situated there because it has that kind of diversity already. Doug Glanville with us here on Forward Progress, Jason Jackson, Kirk Morrison. There's always this conversation that we tend to get from even folks that seems like they're friends and allies in this space about the duration of time. And I'm glad you kind of dispelled anything of, uh, in, in so many ways of being so distant that we deal with these struggles and issues beyond the massive reporting that gets done on the senseless death that occurs, murders that occur in these interactions uh, in, in too many cases uh, with black folks and police. But there are these smaller incidents. There are these covert, not even operations, but sometimes they are. But but what I'm talking about is, Doug, the things you deal with traveling this country, talking about this nation's pastime, just moments that maybe just pop in your head that speak to a need to continue education, awareness, and that the ideal of overcoming some of this bigotry that's bred into people is stuff that we actually still deal with here in 2020. Well, partly because it's part of our country, our country's history. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's founded on those necks of people literally work, whether through slavery and the transition. And, and by the way, our the black experience has always been compromised, by, by the way, you know, whether to unify after the Civil War. It's always been like, well, you know what? You don't need all these things, but we'll trade this for this. There's always a compromise. And so it does make sense that that legacy is hard to shake. It's hard to shake because institutions were built on them and their advantage was baked into it. But we are gaining, you know, more and more awareness and you hope that we can continue to chip away. But there's, although it takes these bold steps, it's still ultimately in the big picture feels very incremental because the complexities are so deep. So, you know, you think about the Green Book, right? Like traveling our country and, you know, we still need a 2020 Green Book in certain respect because there's still, you know, I remember when I think it was Missouri, one of the states was put on like the danger list for black travelers. I mean, you know, this is, these things exist and uh, this experience is is certainly unique and the threat is, is present and clear. But so there's no doubt that recognizing that informs the changes that need to continue and recognizing that, I mean, I could give a whole litany of experiences I've had and, and I work on the Connecticut Council for Police Officer Standards and Training. Mm-hmm. And that's an important body in all these states have these type of councils where you work on the training because what will happen is they will refer to training as the basis by which uh, someone is indicted or whether someone is walks out the door in these type of shootings and so obviously in many cases leading to death. And we also have to remember that the outcome's not always death. And that's not the only outcome that could be devastating. Right. Uh, people lose dignity. They're stripped of purpose. They're stripped of all kinds of things and interactions that may or may not be on film. And it's not just with police. It's going to the bank. It's trying to buy a house. It's trying to get a car, whatever. It's everywhere. And I think what we're seeing today is a little bit more understanding and dialogue around the subtle ways this operates and how pernicious it can be and toxic it can be to your well-being and your life. 
livelihood. And, and so police is just part of the landscape, but there's still so much ground we have to cover. And I think it's helpful to get understand that to get the sort of lens and sensitivity to see it. That's not just the iceberg on the surface, but what happens in the existence below the surface when you have that certain vantage point. And I think that will make a significant difference. Doug, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, you, you can make a monthly stop by. Feel free. Just come on back anytime. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. The Absolutely. couch is always open for you, bro. All right. Well, I'll be on that couch. Thank you for Absolutely. having me. Baseball analyst with us here, uh, Doug Glanville. That's going to do it for us for this edition of Forward Progress. For Kirk Morrison, I'm Jason Jackson, our producer, Penel Brown. We thank so much, uh, Glanville, Freeman, Larkin, for participating in this week's conversation. We'll talk to you next time.